What is population health? Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science covers these topics and much more. Join us. Arisha Martinez Cardoso from the University of Chicago. Michael Esposito from the University of Michigan. I'm Daryl Hudson at Washington University in St. Louis. Twice a month as we discuss cutting edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. Welcome all to another edition of Sick Individual Sick Population and IAPHS podcast. So when the pandemic hit, I'm sure many of us rolled up our sleeves to try to help our neighbors and communities weather this storm. Some folks contributed to mutual aid efforts. Others have been helping delivery groceries and medicines to vulnerable neighbors, family members have helped tutor kids. Um, I've been ordering a whole lot of takeout to support local restaurants, <laughs> or at least I've been saying it, right? <laughs> That's my do-gooder uh, effort. Uh, and population health folks, even those of us who don't directly work in infectious diseases or at the front lines um, in clinical settings, have also been rolling up their sleeves, analyzing data about the pandemic, serving on state and local boards to guide the pandemic response, and much, much more. Uh, our guests today have been using social media, emojis, and a really approachable <laughs> communication style to curate reliable and accurate information about the pandemic that people can trust. Today, we are joined by Dr. Lindsay Leininger and Amanda Semenek, two members of the, Nerdy, of the Nerdy Girls who lead the Dear Pandemic website and social media platforms. Dear Pandemic helps to answer people's pandemic-related questions and cut through the swirl of dis disinformation on the web. For example, for me, they helped me rationalize why I was making so many COVID impulse purchases, and they said that science says it's stress, and that's a good enough answer, so <laughs> I'm going to keep doing it. So thank you for that one. Um, but more seriously, they've been answering a lot of really hard questions in a really unique way, which I think we as population health scientists can really learn from as we also try to communicate our science outside of academia. Uh, Dr. Leidinger is a faculty member at the Tech School of Business at Dartmouth. She's a public health educator and researcher with expertise in data-driven health policy, helping healthcare leaders understand and use data to address health challenges. And then Dr. Simonek is an associate professor of epidemiology at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Her work seeks to better understand the social patterning of infectious disease, the links between infectious and chronic diseases, and how social disparities in health persist across the life course and generations. So with that, welcome to both of you and thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you all. Yeah, I'm super excited for this one. I think it's gonna be a fun podcast uh, and we'll get to see kind of the, the behind the scenes, the machine, right? Of all of the exciting work that you all are doing. Um, so I'm wondering if you could simply start us off by giving us just some backstory as to how Dear Pandemic started and kind of how it works behind the scenes. And I'm really curious to hear how your work, you know, how it all unfolded once everyone realized the pandemic was here to stay, or maybe you all knew that the pandemic was gonna be much longer. You know, like I remember thinking, it's gonna be like a few months and then we're gonna be out of this. Maybe you all knew it and we're kind of setting yourselves up, uh, or maybe you were like the rest of us and kind of this um, project grew longer term as, as things shifted. Um, 
uh, because now you've been running it for the better part of a year. So if you could start us off there. Amanda, do you want to do the honors? I think you should, Lindsay, because uh, <laughs> you were part and parcel to this project a few weeks ahead of me. <laughs> it's like dog years and a yeah. pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> years. Um, so I, I am happy to give a little bit about the backstory. So one of our founders, Dr. Malia Jones, an IAPHS member, uh, epidemiologist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, wrote an email a year ago to her friends and family about what was ahead. And it was just some straight talk, mm. but it was couched in Malia's signature style, which is she's gonna tell you the truth, but she's gonna be there for you to hold space with it, right? That's just very Malia. She's candid, but she's as caring as she is candid. So that email to her friends and family ended up going viral Landed mm. right spot on Dr. Phil of all. <laughs> and of course, just a crush of subsequent emails and media requests. But at the same time, her colleague, Dr. Allison Buttonheim at Penn, behavioral scientist, uh, a researcher in vaccine hesitancy, collaborator of Malia's, was also fielding a lot of questions on social media from her personal network. And I think all of us population health scientists were experiencing this in some way or form. I'm like, why are people looking at me as an expert? You know, my expertise is data-driven health policy, like not yeah. pandemics, but um, you know, we're all experts now, I guess. So we joined up and we decided to take our friends and family's questions more efficiently on a single Facebook page. So we all didn't have to answer the question, should I wipe down my groceries? Is it safe to go to a bike ride? What the heck? My kid's school is being shut down. All those things that were on our minds last spring. So we did it to sort of share the load in terms of serving our friends and family's informational needs. And it took off from there. And it's, it's not that anymore. <laughs> <It's grown enough. laughs> and now we are a social media platform that curates timely and trustworthy information about all things pandemic, including your impulse purchases. I will be sure <laughs> to give that shout out to Dr. Christine Whelan, who is our chief happiness officer. <laughs> For sure. Amanda, anything to add about kind of your experience as it all came together? Yeah, you know, all of us are sort of going down memory lane this week. Um, we communicate primarily on a Slack channel. That's where all of our nerdy girl magic happens. And someone suggested a post, you know, along the lines of what were you doing this week or thinking this week? And so a lot of us have started to, you know, go back in time and look. And I was similar to Lindsay, you know, uh, on my local Facebook groups in my community answering questions. You know, our today is the day a year ago that uh, it was announced in Wisconsin that schools were closing. Mm -hmm. And uh, our kids were scheduled to have uh, parent-teacher conferences on Thursday and Friday. So there was already no school those days. But then we found out, yes, we're not going back to school. And in fact, we're not going back for at least a month. Um, and there was really a dearth of information about, well, what do we do now? Can our kids go to the playground? Can they, you know, can we, what's a pod? How do we, where do we go from here? And one of the um, posts that I found, you know, from a year ago was me looking to what they were recommending from the health department in King County, Washington, because in, you know, in Washington, they were a few weeks ahead of us mm -hmm. in terms of 
outbreaks were happening there. You know, they had already been out of school. So, you know, it, it's fun. It's interesting to look back and remember like, yeah, actually starting from day one, you know, I was trying to communicate on Facebook to people and fill that information void, I think, um, that existed. So, um, I got looped in a few weeks into this project uh, because Malia and Lindsay were asked to um, consult for the Wisconsin National Guard. And mm-hmm. another one of our nerdy girls, Dr. Sandra Albrecht, um, suggested to them, hey, Amanda's in Milwaukee in, in Wisconsin. We see her posting on Facebook. Why don't you see if she um, would help you guys with that um, ask from you know, mm-hmm. that group? Um, and so then after working with those two for uh, a weekend straight, right, <laughs> madly crunching oh numbers, <laughs> I, you know, I, I um, didn't know Malia and, and Lindsay well, but we just sort of jumped in to try to problem solve. And um, then Malia said, hey, would you like to join, you know, the Nerdy Girls? And I was relieved because I knew I would be answering these types of questions. And like Lindsay said, to be able to have the, you know, great minds that are involved in your pandemic as uh, sounding boards and uh, resources, it would just be way easier to tackle that um, together. Yeah, that's innovative, that's efficient. For sure. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And probably the only way to get it done in the early days, right? There was so much uncertainty around the information that was coming out. I don't even know how you all made progress in like recommending anything because it seemed like, you know, exactly what CDC was saying and other officials were saying we're changing like minute by minute. Yeah, it was amazing that you all were able to pull together anything and much less like very good things uh, so early into the pandemic. We used to post three times a day. Yeah. Like (laughs) information was just coming down the pipeline, you know, things like that first study that they looked in the lab at how long the Mm SARS-CoV-2 could survive on paper, you know, on on cardboard and plastic Mm -hmm. and, you know, just kind of so you know so much information and so much void at the same time right yeah oh yeah 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 I do remember one piece before we get on to the next question one piece of early advice was that they were like oh uh, a popular myth was like oh it can stay in your hair and everything and I remember like (laughs) cutting all of my hair (laughs) (laughs) and I wish that y'all yeah I wish that y'all would have been there for me at the beginning (laughs) save me that embarrassment Okay, but kind of moving on, like kind of piggybacking more and talking about your history more. Um, can we talk about like the name that you've given yourselves, the Nerdy Girls? And also like maybe more importantly, um, kind of this decision to kind of carve out like a woman, all woman led a kind of team of researchers and kind of scientists um, in creating this space and like why that was like really essential for the moment. I'll take that. I like this story. So Amanda, if you don't mind, I'll do the honors. So. A uh, fun fact, the name Those Nerdy Girls was given to us and it stuck. So early on when people were cutting their hair, perhaps prematurely and you know, <laughs> about fomite or surface transmission and we thought Advil was gonna give you COVID and you know, all the crazy things we thought at first. Um, one of our early community members said, you know what? There's so much conflicting information out there. I'm just going to listen to what those nerdy girls have to say and stick with that. So the name stuck and now it's become kind of an unintentional brand that we embrace. And 
it was happenstance that we all happened to be women. But what will be a surprise to no one in this group is that, you know, public health is full of women. Right. <laughs> so you just take a random draw of a bunch <laughs> of public health scientists, you know, one of those draws being all women is not, is not an infrequent thing. So sure. at first it was completely unintentional. Um, now we've leaned in. And we've decided to own the name Nerdy Girls. And it's, uh, I think, probably the most surprising, powerful experience for me of this past year has been seeing how women in our community feel mm -hmm. seeing us in the media being considered as experts. Right. Um, it that's that's kind of my why with this at this point it just it, like I'm getting a little bit choked up right but when people say oh my daughters if they can see it they can be it uh, we hear from community members who are of older generations and didn't have the opportunities that you know I did to go get a PhD um, so although it was accidental now it now it's um, I think that's part of the brand and the mission for sure for sure yeah that's really exciting, particularly because the other, I don't know if this was intentional, but you talk about the friends and family thing, like, you know, everyone was just chatting with their friends and family and women we know are like kind of these social network resource brokers, right? And so people are going to be calling up, you know, did you hear this, you know, calling your mom or your sister or mom's talk, right? I'm certain I'm, that's like very gendered, but it's true to some extent. And so thinking about who would people call if they had a, you know, their local neighborhood epidemiologist, right? And it was, it just happened to be the women in their lives. And then, you know, it kind of grew from there. Um, I don't know if that's maybe the, something that kind of also motivated it, but I thought about that as we were thinking about this question. I think that's right. And I can give you an example in my own household. So I am married to a man and when the pandemic hit, my phone was lighting up, my college friends, my middle school friends, my family, my aunts. And he was just like a typical, you know, quote unquote dude. Like he wasn't reaching out to anyone. He let like, nobody was reaching out to him. And I'm like, yeah. so just like within our own, not to like be gender stereotypical, but yet we were yeah. <laughs> in that moment. Um, yeah. But I, I mean, I can say the same thing happened and my husband is a nurse. So there's mm -hmm. not any particular reason why people should reach out to me as an epidemiologist over him and his, you know, knowledge as well. Um, and, but people, you know, do gravitate, I think, to the nerd node of trust that we, you know, have in our <laughs> networks. We like to call ourselves, you know, those nodes in the nerd <laughs> network that people, um, rely on and yeah definitely I'm still taking those kind of inquiries you know from family members and friends it's it's been a constant thing for the past year yeah yeah, yeah. well building off that that nerdy node um we noticed that you know just checking through the website and social media posts everything is really conversational and obviously just interacting with you all you all are very personable and approachable um, so we, we noticed in your posts and whatnot, there's a lot of emojis and, you know, people's personalities really come through. Um, but this is kind of antithetical to what we're trained to do with scientists and researchers. So how did you all come up with this curation style? Um, did you kind of wing it like we've been doing for most of the pandemic, just <laughs> adapting to the circumstances? 
Um, or was it something that you have on your team? Do you have any like communication experts on your team that have helped you to, to craft this approach? Uh, this was uh, building the plane while we flew it entirely. Yeah. We've been winging it. And I kind of cringe when I read my posts from last March and April. <laughs> We've gotten better over time. And now we actually do have a style guide. And um, we hold it pretty lightly, though. Like, nobody's tisk tisking. But yeah. um, back in the day, like, I liked, I was very fond of writing overly turgid Facebook posts about quasi-experimental variation. I'm like, I have to like, get that out. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> it was a learning curve. Got it. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, it is really fun because I, I think I saw one post where it was like, what are you, I don't know, where every, all of the, like, all of the nerdy girls, like, commented about, like, what they were doing, something in the pandemic, and everybody had, like, a little emoji and then their blurb, and it just was really cute to see, oh, like, I could, you know, I could send my sister to this site and mm -hmm. she would get it because you definitely see people's eyes glass over when you're like well you know we did this randomized control trial and they're like so yeah it, it is a super mm -hmm. cool style that I feel like we need to learn more how to do um in our fields yeah well, would... y'all are doing a great job I mean you're podcasters right I don't know about you guys but that was not part of my training at the university uh, no <laughs> <laughs> podcast right I imagine you guys have had to kind of teach yourself too. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. sure. Talking to people is not something that you're really great at. So, yeah, it's learning. This has been a lot. Yeah, I know eye contact and, and masks don't help with that either. They don't. They don't help with maintaining any type of human connection. For sure. Um, you know, one of the 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 other pieces that we kind of gleaned from the site and your social media is that you know, one of your goals is to combat disinformation in the pandemic, which is just an issue that we come up against, you know, time and time again. Um, but the other thing that came to mind is, you know, we also know that we exist in these echo chambers online where the same type of information gets bounced around our own networks, right? So you can imagine somebody who gets the Dear Pandemic page on their Facebook feed is also like, reading the Atlantic and like, I mean, I don't know what else, right? Like listening to NPR. So I'm wondering if you know, or um, do you think really Dear Pandemic has crossed those digital divides to sway or help educate, you know, people who are strong COVID deniers or, you know, vaccine hesitant folks um, and so on. And, you know, do you have any sort of, I wonder, right, data to, to support that that might be happening or, or just kind of anecdotal stories about um, how you think Dear Pandemic is working for, you know, in, in terms of that goal. I'll jump in and start. And Lindsay, I'm sure you have more to add. Um, I do think, you know, I remember sort of back in April, it became really clear that we're not just going to be helping curate and help people navigate like factual information, but there was going to be like sensational headlines. There was going to be just downright, you know, incorrect information, um, you know, people's distributing information with, you know, bad intentions of, um, you know, causing confusion. And, um, you know, I think what we are able to do with our Facebook page is kind of try to flood, you know, that information, um, what do we call it, infosphere or, mm. um, you know, with, with 
correct information and to make it available for people to share. And to your point about, do we have data? You know, something that is totally unique to Facebook is that we can, you know, look at who shares these posts. And sometimes our posts have reach of upwards of a hundred thousand or more people who have interacted with the post. Um, and we can also see the messages. So there's a lot of sort of qualitative data where we see directly someone saying, I know you may have seen this, you know, but this is the real story on this, mm. or, you know, um, I know this is confusing, but check out this page. They explained it really well, you know, so we actually have a lot of qualitative data now a year into this um, in terms of just looking at those share comments, um, you know, that really do point, you know, lead us to uh, think we are making an impact, right? That we are providing information in a format that is shareable and that people feel comfortable sharing because of their trust sort of in us as an information source, it empowers them. Here's a succinct, you know, um, explanation in a format, in a, you know, content that I can easily understand and I can share with somebody that, and they can understand it. So I, I would say yes. And Lindsay, I'm sure you have more to add. I thought that was great. I will mention one additional thing. I think because it's more of a like a cerebral academic interest to me. You know what we see, there's an information scholar at the University of Washington, Jevin West, who I really, I like his work a lot. And I had the pleasure of being on some panels with him early on in the pandemic. And he talks about the fragmented and fractured na nature of our information system and how it's becoming ever more fragmented and fractured, but that that trust still remains. It's not that people have any less trust in information, it's just where they put it is a little more mm -hmm. fractured. So, you know, my my interest knowing is knowing exactly where we are in the info in the infosphere, right? Or then in the ecosystem. And so we are one of those little shattered pieces of glass in the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And I think that what our, our biggest power is just being a bridge. So there's somebody back home in Texas who trusts me and reads it and then goes and tells their relative who's spewing some anti-vax stuff. So I think it's these like bridges to other shards of the information <laughs> ecosystem that we really facilitate because I, what in my personal experience, the only thing that's been able to overcome partisan politics and sort of nasty culture wars right now is the power of personal connection. Mm -hmm. So when a school nurse sees our post and is able to talk to people in Tuscaloosa, Alabama about it, that's our bridge that we're building. Um, in addition to, you know, what Amanda said. Yeah. So kind of thinking about that a little bit more. So um, part of this kind of fragmented kind of, I guess, information space that we live in seems to be that like the bridges that people want to take to kind of connect different pieces of information, right? And so when you're kind of trying to do this like kind of conversational, like very approachable kind of way of disseminating information for folks and building bridges across uh, from, scientific ideas to other kind of pieces of information. You have different strategies, say for like people that are like, oh, I'm hesitant about the vaccine because of like a bunch of historical racism <laughs> that was directed at people like me versus like, I'm hesitant about taking the vaccine because I think Jewish people are you know, doing evil, random racist, you know what I mean? Like really, really kind of QAnon at like um, conservative right wing. Uh, so like, how do you kind of like write so everyone can kind of uh, yeah. 
that get the information that you want to digest. I mean, one other neat component about our um, campaign, I'll call it, is that we solicit questions directly from the people who interact with our campaign. And that basically informs what we're going to post on in the subsequent week. So people can go to our website, dearpandemic.org, and submit a question to the question box. Um, and so, you know, in some way, yes, we're still, you know, in getting questions from whomever has become our followers, and there may be limitations to who's in that network, but we are able to be receptive in that way and kind of um, almost do info surveillance, right? Like the World Health Organization has been, you know, called on scientists to do um, the work of infodemiology, which includes, you know, um, keeping a pulse on where misinformation, disinformation, and lack of information exists um, in the context of this pandemic. And so, you know, another neat feature of Facebook, in addition to that qualitative information about who shares our posts, is we and, and our website is this direct mechanism to cull data on what is it that people want to know, are concerned about, you know. And so, in doing that, you know, we are able, in some ways, to think, okay, well, people are concerned about, you know, vaccines, for instance, and here's the range of concerns that have been expressed to us this week. And what, how can we best do, you know, write posts that um, speak to those concerns or answer those questions um, on a weekly basis? Gotcha. Yeah. And I'll add, we don't see, I mean, I can't change a closed mind. If you believe QAnon mm. is about to get you and that, I, bye. I mean, really, like, if, mm. you know, like anyone who has an open mind and an open heart and it comes in good faith, we engage with, but anything, it's not worth it because they're not persuadable and they don't really want to be in conversation, right? Mm, for sure, yeah. So, you know, we have some stickiness, I would say, because we're, we are still struggling, like, are we bipartisan? Mm -hmm. you know, Nonpartisan mm. has some like emotional weight that I, <laughs> right? But like, mm. maybe bipartisan's better, you know? I wrote a, I've written one op-ed in my life and that was during the pandemic. And it was that public health and population health needs to do a better job building bridges to conservatives. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm probably the most like conservative person on our team. So, so we have these kind of like, it's hard. I wish I had like, you know, the QAnon in some ways is easy because you're like, man. Sure, cut it off. <laughs> yeah. You guys are just toxic, right? But it's, mm -hmm. I feel like it's the good natured. <sighs> it's so hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 for sure. But I'd say another, you know, um, goal and strategy that our team has had is broadening the voices that we have um, help, you know, working together on this team. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I, something that probably happened a bit organically is, you know, this far, our followers started with our family and friends who primarily look like us, probably from similar social class, you know, um, geographic location. Right. So that's where the following started right in our own mm -hmm. work. And then it has branched out from there, um, you know, but I think uh in the interest of science communication that does reach a broader audience and that does um, address the concerns that a broader audience may have about vaccines, about, you know, anything related to this pandemic, um, you know, we have recognized that we, you know, we can't be the messenger that is a meaningful messenger to all people, you know, that 
we may need, we need to broaden our team. And so that's been a goal. And I don't know, Lindsay, if you want to talk more about our strategy for that. Yeah, no, we are broadening our team. So all the writers are volunteers, but we raise a little money from Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to fund a contributing BIPOC scholar, female scholar. So she just started yesterday. We're so excited. Um, and so I think in addition, you know, to broadening our own team, something that's very near and dear to us is partnering. Because as Amanda said, you know, me, I am not the right trusted messenger for many communities that I care deeply about. So I feel like in many ways, the best thing I can do is lift up, partner and support trusted messengers who are already there. Mm -hmm. So I think as we, you know, as we've become more of a sustaining enterprise, as opposed to just like, oh my God, what are we doing? Um, we're getting more thoughtful about partnering and, um, and offering our support in service of others' leadership, right? Like, yeah. Like, I wonder if like, to Mike's point, if like Dear Pandemic 2.0 or 3.0, right, is like, how do we tailor, you know, I used to have this health education professor, I was like, how do we tailor like the same message for these different audiences where like the gist of what we're saying is the same thing, but like the lead in is a little bit different, right? right? And so if you're talking to, you know, like the Catholic school parents who like really want to send their kids to school still, like how does it, and you were talking about school closing and openings, right? Whereas um, in a particular way that, and you help kind of curate, you know, the Catholic school diocese to help have them craft and tailor their messages, mm -hmm. right? Or you know, to your point, like the church organizers, right, who really wanted to open their churches, but were also like recognizing the limitations of like, what, what are the risks, right, like help them. And so then using Dear Pandemic as a way to be like, how do we like shape the conversation to help these folks um, who are well-meaning, who like mm -hmm. want to understand the concerns of their constituencies, whatever that is, but also like want to present the right information, right? Um, yeah, I, I just wonder, like, how do we do that? And I wonder if you guys are a good model for experimenting with that. Well, I will, you know, I'm going to speak to this because it's so near and dear to my heart. I feel like what we're doing is good old fashioned community health work. Mm -hmm. We need to think about our communities these days as being both digital and place based. <laughs> but I, you know, I got my start in population health, digging latrines in Latin America as a 15 year old community health worker. Um, I trained community health workers to help people sign up for Obamacare during the ACA. So community mm -hmm. health is like my resume and my DNA, right? And, and this work feels very aligned with that. And just to your really good point, I see like, I would love to go help the school nurse of the diocese or a nurse of the diocese and support her to get up there and talk. And it's just good old fashioned boots on the ground community health. I, I, that's how I conceptualize it. Amanda, I don't know if you disagree, but I, I'm a community health person in my bones, so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, you know, all of us were called to be a part of Dear Pandemic because people were looking to us, you know, as someone in their community, right? That had the knowledge and the expertise, you know, to help navigate what was happening. And so, you know, at its heart, we, we probably would have kept doing this if we just had our own friends and family follow us, right? Like, because that's where it started, right? And obviously it has grown immensely um, and, you know, to much further reach than that since then. Yeah, so we're, we're all academics here. 
Um, and so we're thinking about, you know, how does this play a role into the rest of your academic career? So, you know, your for your junior colleagues, your tenure promotion prospects, um, we've been talking to a lot of people um, who are academics and researchers, you know, for the podcast. And, you know, it's really challenging. We, we just had a, a recorded a podcast earlier in this week that people are really, you know, struggling under the weight of everything that's been happening, including childcare and just the overall ambient anxiety of dealing with the unknown and unexpected and adapting to it in virtual classes. And the list goes on and on and on. So you all are, are doing that work as well. Um, I don't know about your all's tenure documents, but there doesn't have, there's no section <laughs> in the promotion guidelines for, for starting a dynamic, you know, um, like, you, like Lindsay said, this kind of virtual community. Um, so how do you how do you think about this as it relates to your own personal trajectory and also thinking about how do you think this should be incorporated into, into those guidelines, into the future for, for institutions to think about rewarding this type of work that is so important? Amanda, do you want to? <laughs> this is a frequent topic Dagger of conversation, to <laughs> um, you know, among all of us, you know, there, there are some of some members, you know, who are, have not gone up for tenure yet. Some of us are tenured. Um, and, you know, I think we are trying to um, carve out and demonstrate the value in science communication and the study of infodemiology in the context of a pandemic and sort of um, how you, you know, bridge your academic knowledge to science communication efforts during an emergency situation like this. Um, you know, and I think, you know, from an academic perspective, we are, we have a couple publications under review now, uh, you know, describing our effort. We have some goals of, you um, doing some evaluation work, you know, program evaluation or Im impact evaluation work um, based on what we've been doing. Um, and so there's that side of it. I think, you know, a few of us were called on by our universities at the beginning of the pandemic to be media points of contact. Um, and so there was some intersection that was the case for me where, you know, I was asked basically to do a service to the university by being someone who media would contact or I would be, you know, referred to about questions about the pandemic. And there over time became a natural intersection, right? So many of the media um, interviews that we all do, we link to Dear Pandemic posts. Um, this was something that happened early on. For me, I was um, contributing to a column in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel called, you know, ask the experts questions about COVID-19. And so there's that sort of overlap with that being like kind of me representing UWM in that way, in that column, and also a natural link, we would link to the Dear Pandemic posts, you know? So I think this is also, you know, building the plane as we fly it, you know, um, in trying to navigate that, um, you know, and it's a challenge. I think, especially coming up on a year since the pandemic started, it's sort of like, gosh, what did I get done this last year? And we have to submit our <laughs> review materials, you know, in the next few weeks. And um, there's certainly appreciation from my university that I've been out there as the face of, you know, like, you know, was the, the Zilber School of Public Health. I've been, um, you know, liaisoning with community about these topics. 
Um, and I hope that it will be, you know, valued um, by my institution. <laughs> so let's talk after my annual review. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Circle back. Yeah. A few unvarnished opinions, um, Daryl. You're like striking a nerve here, my friend. Um, <laughs> we, we asked the tough questions here. <laughs> and, and the reason why I feel like I can afford to be a little more candid is because I am not tenure track faculty. I am practitioner mm. faculty. And so I have some freedom. You know, I don't have the security of tenure, but I have some freedom in terms of how I define my work. Um, and Pretty early on last summer when this thing started blowing up, I stepped up and I was like, I can lead this. I can be the nerdy girl in chief. In large part, because as practitioner faculty, my deans were like, awesome. Yeah. Like, what do we yeah. care if you pause your research for a year and like yeah. lead this thing? So um, it is a head scratcher to me that my more traditional academic research colleagues in public health have to justify their work on this <laughs> and the opportunity mm -hmm. cost of not having two or three more paper lines mm -hmm. on their CV. Like that makes me blow my mind. And again, mm -hmm. I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna make anybody else speak about this because of the sensitivities mm -hmm. involved, but as somebody who's outside of that, mm -hmm. I'm like, this is insanity. <laughs> that, <laughs> that reaching, you know, our community on Facebook now is 75,000 people. We have over 300 media mentions. We've given dozens of talks from Grand Rounds, <laughs> the middle school classrooms, to the World Bank, to the halls mm -hmm. of Congress. Dude, like institutions, <laughs> look at yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, I think sorry, off my soapbox. Well, <laughs> You know, we're all we're population health scientists. Not everybody's in the school of public health that's on our team, but we do have you know a fair number of people in public health and also in nursing. And like you know, these are two fields where there's a clear applied bridge arm mm -hmm. of you know um, when you get a degree in epidemiology, academia is not the only route that you can take, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that's somewhat different than perhaps, you know, a history PhD who, you know, is maybe going to be able to comment on the, his, you know, historical 1918 pandemic, but like we have this opportunity to also directly engage in applied public health work. And it, part of what that is right now and the need is, is science communication, mm -hmm. um, you know, and the work that we do out there talking to media or communicating this actually does support health departments. It supports, you know, Centers for Disease Control, it supports the World Health Organization because it, we um, work in tandem with them to communicate these messages. You know, I was on Wisconsin Public Radio yesterday to talk about the new CDC guidelines. And my goal, or my hope in doing that is that people where I live in Milwaukee, or, you know, or in the state of Wisconsin, get the right messaging and that that helps support what the state and local health departments are trying to communicate about it, you know, so there's a direct and immediate impact. And if during a pandemic, um, academic institutions aren't going to make space for that engagement in, you know, the community, I don't know when that will ever be supported, honestly. Yeah. And I think yeah. I made a decision early on, I was going to do it because, 
you know, if, if you're in a restaurant and someone's choking and someone says they're a doctor in the room <laughs> and you just like turn away and you're a doctor, you know, I, I, I don't this, know. I don't, so, yeah. I just couldn't, I couldn't not yeah. engage yeah. in this way. Like I have training in infectious disease epidemiology. I've, you know, worked on, you know, <laughs> looking at, um, these types of mitigation measures for respiratory infection transmission, like, was it even an option to just be like, mm, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in in the next pandemic. <laughs> you know? uh, yeah. um, right. And so your first 10 year first. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it just, um, I, I I'm just so grateful that like I was able to band together with these other women because it would have been much lonelier to do this work on my own. Sure. And I don't think I would have not been doing it. I just would have been doing it less efficiently and less, you know, with less support. Yeah, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And I can I make one plug? Um, I, you probably don't have a lot of business school faculty on your podcast, so I just want to um, <laughs> business schools get it. Mm. I will say, yeah, yeah, yeah. So my business school has been like go. So okay. yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, maybe there. Since you all have a trusted brand now, you can issue like the Nerdy Girls Guide to Contemporary Academic. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Well, our tenure, because, you know, it's true. We've talked about this before, is that not to discount anybody's science, but mm -hmm. I think any one of your Facebook blog posts got more impressions and mm -hmm. reads than maybe some of your, like, like your high tier, you know, mm -hmm. academic journal with this highest impact factor. But There's like, no maybe about that. Sadly. But, you know, where does that, number fit on your CV, right? And um, how, you know, how do you even translate that? Like, this is what a Facebook impression is, you know? So thinking, um, I think, I think the times will change. And I think as universities uh, think about how are they going to stay relevant? How are they going to meet mm -hmm. the challenges of, you know, the modern times? Um, as everyone's thinking about their brand, right? Universities mm -hmm. included, I think we're going to have to I'll be like glitzy on Twitter and do more public facing things. Um, you know, I was told when I was at like some like getting ready for tenure, like what you should know for tenure is it's not just about what you do, but like how you package it. Like when you think about like your tenure case, like what are, what is your brand? Like, do you have a story? Like, do people know your story? And I'm like, well, nobody tells you that. And then nobody you don't get any, like, you don't get anything for tenure if you're working on your brand. But like, if you don't have a brand when you go up for tenure, then it's like, well, what were you doing this entire time? Right. So it's, a very, it's a very catch 22 kind of situation that we're in as academics, um, yeah. trying to navigate this for sure. Yeah, so that's my soapbox. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. I love all the soapboxes here. All right. So I, we're, we're getting close to time. So to kind of wrap up, uh, I got one last question for you. And that's what's next, right? So maybe the pandemic is going to end one day, hopefully one day relatively yeah. soon. Um, yeah. Where does the, uh, where do the nerdy girl, girls go next, right? There's a lot of bullshit out there in the world that <laughs> we can just kind of digging through. Um, but I don't know if you've all thought about like exactly what you want this to look like moving forward. I will definitely defer to our nerdy girl in chief to answer <laughs> yeah. this question. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, we've actually recently taken like a formal vote on this event. And, mm. and 
Nerdy Girl Nation will continue on. So, you know, there's a quote by medical sociologist Nicholas Christakis that for the past thousands of years, as long as there's been the spread of germs, there's been the spread of lies right behind it. <laughs> so the work will shift, but the need will remain. Yeah. So stay tuned. But, but one thing I know for sure is that we will be delighted to stay in partnership with IAPHS. So. There you go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's all we that's all we wanted to hear, really. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have a place here? Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, well, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to chat with us. This was super fun, and we learned so much about what y'all are doing. Um, and we really can't wait to see what you all do next in your work. Um, folks can learn more about the Nerdy Girls and Dear Pandemic by checking out their webpage, dearpandemic.org, and social media handles. Until next time, thank you for joining us for another episode of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations from IAPHS. Have a good one. Bye, everybody.